0: The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. It's so sure good to be together this morning, and uh, if you're visiting with us, I sure hope you feel the love of God and you've gotten to know at least one or two other people. And uh, as uh, you could tell from Azra's announcement, we are getting ready to be moving into a new building, and this past weekend we had a board staff retreat and had a time of prayer and planning, and uh, it's just really exciting how... So many, so many things are going on at one time, and God is, is raising up leadership and teamwork. And, and as we go through the book of Nehemiah, it just seems so appropriate that we're on this page together. We're, we're in the book of Nehemiah. There have been so many lessons that are been coming out, and so this morning as well, we're going to look at a, um, a scripture that really, as we look at it, has, has a bit more to do with warning than anything. And have you ever noticed that you can't buy anything nowadays without getting a warning on there? I found out just in my devotional this morning, I was reading about warning passages in, my, in the scriptures and, and the author of this devotional referred to a few things. Uh, for example, peanuts often will have a warning on it that says, contains nuts. I don't, I don't understand that, you know. Another one is uh, the nighttime sleep aids, you know, that you get night and all these. Uh, it, it says on their warning, may cause drowsiness. And the one that I liked the most is, you know, the average quarter inch household drill that every household has. There was one brand that has a warning on it that says not intended for use as a dentist's drill. <laughs> so just in case you needed to know that, they they made sure that you you knew that. Well, you know, in in the scriptures there's all kinds of passages about warning. And last week as Pastor Doug was going through chapter 4 of Nehemiah, He was talking about the the warning that is given to people who have opposition coming from outside of the faith community. In this case, in Nehemiah's case, Jerusalem, the community of exiles that were returning from Babylon to rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. And today, as we look at the scripture in chapter 5, we're seeing that the warning has to do not so much with some external opposition, but internal opposition. That is a faith community that is facing strife and disunity and opposition from within its own fellowship and family. And uh, in my experience, it is, not, it is not the external opposition that faces most churches or ministries, right? Uh, even, even if you know, if take that and apply these principles today to, to your marriage, to your family life, to your business... You know, the, the issues that usually cause crumbling and, and disintegration is not external, it is internal. In my experience as being a pastor of other churches in Canada, being on the mission field in Bolivia, I saw it so many times that it was not something outside that brought strife, but something inside. And so, the God's Word is, is so very clear, and as we keep our focus on the Lord Uh, indeed, we're able to overcome. So I just want to ask the Lord's blessing on this sermon as we look into this scripture together. So would you pray with me just momentarily? And Father, now as we come to the scriptures, we thank you that that you have some things to say to us uh, as a warning to remind us that uh, it's important for us to keep our eyes on you, that it's important for us to be respectful of each other, And that the enemy would love to come in and sow seeds of of disunity. So we ask you, Lord, to just help us. And Lord, today I pray for each person that is here. I don't know what we've brought in to this place today, but I know that you do. And so we ask you to please minister your grace and your word. And let each person leave today with something that your Holy Spirit has taught them, taught us. In Jesus' name, amen. It was a long time ago, I remember hearing the story about a man who was at home, came home from work and wanted to read the paper, but his little four-year-old son was wanting to play and so on, and so finally, to kind of distract his son, he, he, he found this big globe, this map of the world on the, paper, on the newspaper, and so he cut it into little pieces, and then he, he gave his son all the pieces and, a, and some scotch tape. And he figured that would keep him long enough occupied so he could go at his uh, reading of the paper. But his son came back to him within a couple minutes, and he said, how did you fit this thing back together so fast? And he said to him, well, it was easy. On the other side of the, of the world is a picture of a man, and as soon as I put the man in his place, the world got straightened out. Now, that, that'll preach, right? That'll preach, won't it? As soon as you get the man in his place, you know, the world gets straightened out. And that man is Jesus, right? As soon as we have him in his place, you know, the world gets straightened out. That goes for things within the family of God too. As soon as the Lord Jesus is rightfully in his place, whatever kind of disintegrating and disunifying factors that might be in the family of God, they're going to get worked out. And as as Azar shared with us this morning about the board staff retreat and the praying and the thinking that we're doing. Um, I was thinking of uh, the late Eugene Peterson that just died recently and a quote from him that I came across. Eugene Peterson wrote once, when disaster strikes, understanding of God is at risk. I like that. When disaster strikes, understanding of, of God is at risk. And it is the task of the prophet, in this case we would say a church leader, to stand up at such moments and to clarify who God is and how God acts. And I think that's what I heard as they're sharing a little bit today is we got got to keep patient, planning, uh, prayerful, stepping forward, but we got to remember who God is and how God acts. You'll remember a few weeks ago when we got into Nehemiah, that we started by seeing how Nehemiah responded to the news of the broken down walls and the destruction of Jerusalem. And I said that when he fasted and prayed, I said, you know that we tend to skip over that theme of fasting pretty quick, and so I literally did this. I said, we're going to put fasting over here, and we're going to come back to that. Well, I didn't think we'd be coming back quite so soon, but I feel that November is the month we're supposed to come back to the theme of fasting. Now, some of you may not be real familiar with fasting as a practice of your own faith journey, of your faith in Christ. And I think we could go long and hard on this, but I want to, I want to say, and this, this might be very, very overly simplistic, but I'm going to say it anyway. In my way of thinking, as I read Scripture and as I understand what fasting is in Scriptures, there's really only two kinds of fasting in the Bible. The one kind of fasting is a return to God which is often described in times like in the Scriptures here where, where there's, this, there's been a rebellion of God's people, there's been a disobedience, there's been a sin, and they need to repent and turn, return to God. But that's not the kind of fasting that we're calling the church to because the other kind of fasting that is in Scripture is simply, I would call, a turn to God. There's the return to God, and then there's the turn to God. Why why do you fast when you turn to God? Well, I think that in this case we're calling a turn-to-God kind of fasting because I don't think that we have been sinning against God. I don't think we've missed His plan. I don't think we're off in rebellion. I don't think we're not listening. I think we're just needing to turn to God because we've come up against some things that we have no idea how they're going to be resolved, you know? We've, got, we've come to the end of our wisdom, our planning, our resources, our thoughts, and we're saying, God, if you don't show up, we're not sure what's going to happen. And of course, God is glorified in that, because then there's no boasting, there's no glorying in it, there's no figuring it out by ourselves. It's just saying, God, we need you. And that's what fasting does. Fasting is saying to your own body, you're not going to be the boss of me now. No, no, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out from the mouth of God. And so we're gonna say, God, please, we're desperate. We need you. Now, some of you may not be able to fast with food. And I get that. I've talked to people that are in that condition. And so I'm not saying that there's any legalism in this. If you can't fast with food, then maybe fast social media for a week or so. Maybe you'll all of a sudden say everybody's gonna fast food, eh? Um <laughs> you know, take, take away Facebook or what, whatever it is that you tend to go to so often and say, God, I'm going to sacrifice that. And in that space, I'm praying. I'm joining my brothers and sisters and I'm seeking God. And we're going to ask you, Lord, what are you going to do for the Truth and Life Worship Center? What, what are you going to do for them? Oh, Lord, show them a buyer in St. Vital. And Lord, what are you going to do for us? Lord, show us. We want this place this space on 201 Skirfield to continue to witness jesus christ in this community lord who are you going to send and so let's continue to pray for that And, and as far as fasting you know is it one meal a week you want to miss is it a day in the month of november i don't know how you're going to do you want to do it with your small group life group do you want to do it with your family and end it with a feasting I don't know. You decide that. I'm just asking you, would you consider that in November, let's fast and pray and let's seek God together that he might show up. God wants to grow our faith. So fasting is always about He's just growing our faith. We're depending less on self. We're depending more on God because, Lord, you have to show up. I was was thinking this week about um, I was at a Promise Keepers conference in Atlanta, Georgia in 1996. And Tony Evans, the the preacher, got up to share. And he shared the story of being asked to go and preach in another town in another part of the United States. And the the group that had asked him to go and preach said, we're going to fly you here in a a four-seater Cessna. Now, Tony was excited about that, but his wife was not so excited. So when he shared it with his wife, he said, uh, she said, "Uh uh-uh, no way I'm stepping on that plane. And she, he said to her, he said, "Honey, your faith is too small." It was trying to sound like Tony Evans here. And uh, she said, "No, honey. your plane is too small." <laughs> so they went back and forth like that, and finally they, they, they arranged to fly with Delta. And so he turned to his wife, he said, "Honey, your faith is growing." And she said, "No, honey. Your plane has grown." And I took from that, now, so he took from that this idea that we need a delta-sized God, not a Cessna-sized God. But what I took from that was that how prone we are to say we trust in God, when really what we're trusting in is the the things visible, the resources at our hands, the planes, you know, that we would say, oh, no, we can't trust, we need something bigger, visibly bigger. And God is saying, no, trust in the invisible, the resourceful God that that he is. Trust in me. I'm going to supply your need. I think that's where God has us right now. I don't believe God is going to answer this prayer tomorrow. I think God wants us to grow and and seek him. And somewhere along the next few months, I believe God is going to meet us and show us the answer, give us the way out. Let's take a look at the scripture in Nehemiah chapter 5. Instead of reading this portion of Scripture today, I'm going to be talking it through. And uh, a crisis comes upon the community of faith in Jerusalem, the exiles that had come back from Babylon. And a crisis comes, and it seems like the crisis is around a shortage of food. Now, there's good reason for that. First of all, the reason is because the immigration from Babylon, former Babylon, to, to Jerusalem because of the fact that the king of Persia had emancipated all these people that 70 years earlier had been taken into exile. And so there's this huge waves, actually three waves of influx of immigrants, and the land cannot support the people. Add to that that there has been a famine, according to verse 3 of Nehemiah 5, there's been a famine that year. Add to that that the neighboring peoples are raiding... Raiding parties are coming in and taking food because the walls are still broken down. They're a vulnerable community. Now, unfortunately, we know that there are people that are eager to take advantage of those who are down. We would not be surprised that it, that foreigners are doing this to Jerusalem, but we certainly are surprised to hear that it's also happening. This exploitation at the hands of their own countrymen, the Jews are part of the problem the problem is internal now what is the problem it starts in chapter five verse two you can follow along with me in verse two we read about one group of people that come and they say we don't even have enough food to feed our families how do you expect us to work on the wall verse three another group and maybe the same group says we've mortgaged everything we own in order to get grain during this famine verse four it says, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax, the king of Persia and his tax. We've had to borrow money. Do you see the desperation on this community? They don't have enough food to feed their families. They've some, some have mortgaged everything they have just to get grain. Some of them are barely squeaking out through borrowing to pay tax. And then the biggest one, verse 5, the hardest one, it says, we have for, been forced to to make our sons and daughters slaves of our own countrymen. Okay? And when Nehemiah hears these problems, especially the usury that is being charged and the forced enslavement, gets angry. Nehemiah is a real leader. We see him experience every range of emotion. And in this case, he is angry. I want you to notice how how Nehemiah responds. First of all, let's not overlook the fact from verses 1 to 5, the first thing this leader did was he listened. And I think any good leader has to be a pretty good listener to understand what are the issues that are at stake. There have been four mentioned in verses 1 to 5. Secondly, as soon as he's heard the problem, he, he naturally responds with anger at this. Now, he doesn't go off half-cocked with his anger. He says It says in verse seven, that he ponders it. He, he takes some time alone with God. He ponders it in his mind. He thinks through his approach. And then in verse seven as well, he confronts those who are to blame for this. The nobles and the officials are exploiting the working class Jews. And then finally in verse eight, he calls a meeting of the whole group. There's not going to be anything swept under the rug. There's not going to be anything pretending it's not a big deal no, he, he as a leader, as a leader of this community of faith is going to take it seriously and deal with it. Just as any person that's in charge of a company, just as any person that's in charge of a family, just as any person that's, that's in the marriage will say, we need to do something about this problem. We cannot just pretend. And so he's calling them together. What's his message? In a nutshell, his message is this. Your Jewish brothers and sisters did not return from their slavery in Babylon only to be enslaved all over again in this enterprise of rebuilding Jerusalem. That's in a nutshell what it's all about. They did not return from slavery in Babylon only to be enslaved again by their own people. This must stop, he says. Now, usury is defined as the crime of charging an unlawfully high rate of interest. And Nehemiah says the usury must stop. Well, they should have known it shouldn't have began because in the law of Moses, Leviticus 25.36 or Deuteronomy 23.19, the Jews were, were prohibited from charging interest to another brother or sister in the faith. They were prohibited by the law of Moses For charging interest. And so it was seen as a crime against the the very body of the Lord's church. And yet, here in meager times, post exilic times, here was this group, and because of the hard times, those that had the means to do something exploited those that did not have the means. Not unlike that we see centuries later in Acts chapter 6. Remember that? There's another problem in Jerusalem the distribution of food, and the apostles have to deal with it. It seems like in both cases, Nehemiah 5 and Acts chapter 6, the leadership that's in charge at the time takes it on. It's, it's saying, well, on my watch, we're going to be having integrity. We're going to deal justly. We're going to be merciful in the way that we lead the church. Unity in the body of Christ is so important, isn't it? Wherever we find unity, God just loves to join. In fact, I heard a a paraphrase of Matthew 18, 20 one time, you know, the verse where two or three of you get together, agree and agree. God says, I will come and see it myself. You know, that's it. God loves unity. Psalm 133 says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. There the Lord commands a blessing. God's going to bless the church that's unified god's going to bless a united marriage god's going to bless a family that's in unity and god warns against those that are divisive galatians chapter 5:15 paul warns the church he says if you keep on biting and devouring each other watch out or you will be destroyed by each other james chapter 3:16 for where you have envy and selfish ambition There you find disorder and every evil practice. And so God loves unity. Now, the thing that's really wonderful about Nehemiah here is that not only was he able to pray things up to God, and not only was he able to work things out in the community because of his leadership, we also see that he is able to spread things around. And what I mean by that is he, he was able to spread around the vision he had and employ many, many more people. In the first service, when I got to this point, I shared a, a story from a former church of uh, a gossiper. Spreading things around is often not a good thing. And uh, the, in the church that I'm talking about, they, the people that count the money are called tellers. And they had a chief teller that served to organize all the tellers and the woman that was being commended for her years of telling was the chief gossip as well in the church and I thought it was just too ironic for me I had to I almost laughed out loud when I read in the annual report thanks to so-and-so for her years of telling and it was divisive in the church right it was causing problems But no, Nehemiah isn't spreading gossip, nothing like that. Nehemiah is spreading division. How does he do so? Well, it says in verses 14 and following that as the governor of Judah, he had the right to actually charge taxes and to get food from all the people that were in the land. But instead, what we see him doing is he actually out of his own pocket is supporting people at his table. He's giving food from his own table as the governor of Judah. He completely turns the tables on this. And instead of, for those 12 years, it says, instead of enjoying all the benefits of exploiting the people, he actually gives to the people. He had 150 officials at his table every day. In verse 18, it describes all the animals and food that was prepared daily for those that ate at his table. And then why did he do it? Verses 15 and 16 say, Out of reverence for God, I did not act like that, he says. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All of my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. And so we see that Nehemiah is just exemplary. And I believe that it's partly partly his wisdom in leadership, his example in leadership, His his spreading the vision around by saying, come on, let's do this together, that that they avoided what would have been absolutely divisive at a vulnerable time in the life of that community of faith. He prayed things up, he worked things out, and he spread things around. What an example Nehemiah is. I would encourage you, at this season of our our time, um, we're just so excited about what God's doing at White Ridge. We're looking forward to this transition into the new building. We have seen God raise up people from all different areas where leadership is needed. And you might not agree with all the decisions, all the processing, and you're entitled to that. Unity does not mean uniformity. But I would encourage you, if you have any concerns, you go to these people that are in leadership. Come to us, talk to us. You know, maybe you've got a word of wisdom that we need to hear. Uh, We want to be good listeners. And let's not let the enemy cause any disunity. We've enjoyed a season of God's favor for a reason. God is, we've got a momentum in ministry. God wants to multiply the, the kingdom footprint of this church family so that as Kevin was talking about, one day when we get to heaven and look back and we're singing praise in glory. We can look back and say, you know, praise God. He kept us from some of the garbage that could have absolutely derailed White Ridge Baptist Church in those years. May God be glorified in this. Now, some of you might ask, and I've been asking this, is as we've gone through Nehemiah, I've mentioned before, let's, let's make sure we, we keep an eye on the Jesus sightings, right? And uh, I think I found one that I want to share with you as we get ready to go to the Lord's table this morning. Think about this. Think about this. There is a people that had been in exile for 70 years. Some of them had been born there. They knew nothing but slavery to the Babylonians. That was their life. And then a king comes along and overcomes Babylon, the king of Persia, and he, by an edict, says, you are free. And they, a whole group of them, wave by wave, go back to their homeland in Jerusalem as free people, no longer enslaved. And yet in, this, in the return to their homeland, they get there. They start to enter into the enterprise of rebuilding the temple and the walls. And what happens is all of a sudden, this working class Jewish family finds themselves enslaved all over again by the nobility, by the officials of, Jew, of the Jews. And Nehemiah stands up and says, there's no way this can happen. Uh uh-uh. And what does it say in Romans 8 verse 15? In 8.15 it says, For you, Christians, you, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. Where does that language come from? You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. You see, when Jesus, when the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. And when Jesus saves you, when you really know Christ, When he forgives your sin, he does not set you free from one slave only to bring you over to the church, to religion, and make you a slave all over again to a whole bunch of do's and don'ts, a whole bunch of legalism, a whole bunch of judgment, a whole bunch of condemnation. That is not the gospel of Christ. That is not the grace of God. And yet that is preached in pulpits all across the land. Somehow you've brought out of that, but now you better buck up and you better live this way. I see glorious freedom in this text. You see, Jesus did not set us free just to make us enslaved to fear all over again in some other kind of religious department. He set us free. And if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. I'm going to ask those that are getting ready to serve the Lord's Supper to come and to get ready to serve the meal. And as we're ready to receive the meal today, just a word of explanation that uh, this table that is furnished with simple elements of bread and cup, juice, it's simple and it's been an act of remembrance since Christ was resurrected and went back to heaven. Uh, He told us, do this in remembrance of me. And every time we partake of the bread and the cup, we are proclaiming his death until he comes again. And so Jesus is inviting you to come and to receive this, the bread representing his body, the cup representing his blood. And when you receive the tray, uh, pass it on to the next person immediately, so you have two hands free to just take the bread and the cup. And remember, this is this is not a Baptist table. This is the, the the table of the Lord. And if you you have understood the freedom that Jesus Christ purchased, then He invites you to receive today and to enjoy His freedom. Let me pray for us, Lord. Now as we get ready to partake of this meal. We thank you, Jesus, as the head of the table. You are the one that invites each individual. Lord, we know we don't deserve to be here. We know we have fallen short, oh God. But Lord, we thank you that you're so good to, to receive us when we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And may even in this moment... May even in this moment there be people that just confess their sin and and give it up to you and receive back clean conscience, clean from shame and guilt, and free in Christ. Let that be so. As we receive the bread and the cup now, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.